From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's a lot riding on Colorado's new public option. It's time to hold the healthcare market accountable. Your zip code, your income, your race should not determine your health outcomes. And right now it can't. And I don't think that's something that Colorado should stand for. But what does accountability look like? And will that translate to quality health care at a lower cost? Then there's new technology to keep things moving at DIA as this busy summer travel season kicks off. And if this summer has you dreaming of relaxing in the shade with a book, we have some summer reading ideas from the experts. From a true story about a wolf that leads his pack by example, to a new teen novel about an Iranian girl coming of age. Colorado Public Radio remains committed to taking you on daily explorations into the world of music and into the news of the day bringing you more backstories and perspectives with an expanded schedule. Your support ensures a strong foundation for the compelling coverage and storytelling that you will continue to rely on. A popular way to support? Start an evergreen membership and commit to giving a little each month. Colorado Public Radio is powered by you. Give because the news and music matter at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. When it comes to health care, the high cost is often a barrier. It can mean not being able to afford insurance, inequity in treatment, and delaying care altogether. Colorado's new public option is supposed to address these issues. State lawmakers passed a bill to create the option in this year's legislative session, but no one knows yet what it'll look like. The state, along with insurers, doctors, and hospitals, Hospitals have a year to figure it out. Senator Kerry Donovan, a Democrat from Vail, sponsored the legislation. And Senator, welcome. Thanks for having me. And Michael Conway is the state's insurance commissioner. Thanks for joining us. It's great to be here. We should note first that this is not a true public option like some countries abroad have. The state isn't running it, but insurers offer a state-sponsored plan. And the major goal of this legislation is to reduce the cost of premiums. And Senator Donovan, how much can people expect to save? Yeah, with the Colorado option that was signed into law just recently, we'll see a 15% reduction for folks across the state in the individual small group market which will move us from some of the most expensive premiums in the country to some of the least expensive premiums in the country, because we really focused on making sure that we had affordable, quality health care for people to purchase on the exchange, as well as increasing consumer choice, because this new Colorado option will be offered in every county in the state. Let's say a family of four in Mesa County. Commissioner, how much can they expect to pay under the Colorado option? Yeah, Andrea, so that depends quite a bit on what type of plan that that family of four would have enrolled in, whether they're in a bronze plan or a silver plan or a gold plan. But we can expect that at the end of that three-year period when that 15%, that full 15% is kicked in, that we're talking about thousands of dollars a year for that family of four. Let's take bronze, for example. What will be covered? What won't? So everything that's required by the Affordable Care Act to be covered and is required by state law to be covered is going to be covered in this as well. With additional requirements, 
So the, the, there's a few core components of this bill. One of those core components is the standardized benefit design that we're going to be developing through a stakeholder process over really the next six months. And part of that stakeholder process is going to be discussing what type of additional benefits could go into that standardized plan into the Colorado option. Things like perinatal care, all sorts of different types of care that would go in front of the deductible so folks can actually have something more than just an insurance card in their pocket. Really what this will be focused on, Andrea, is, is more about the cost shares, the co-payments, the deductibles that folks have to pay and sometimes avoid care completely because they can't afford their co-pays or their deductibles. So, Commissioner, insurers, doctors, and hospitals will all be part of these negotiations. What's your role in all of this? So it's my sincere hope that I don't really have much of a role past actually setting up that standardized benefit design and making sure that we get to those, that the um, that the healthcare market itself can get to those premium decreases that Senator Donovan and the other sponsors put into the legislation. But it's time to hold the healthcare market accountable. Um, and if the healthcare markets at large, if the doctors, if the insurance companies, if the hospitals can't manage to hit those premium decreases on their own, then we will have the ability and really the requirement because of the legislation to have hearings where we have discussions about why they couldn't meet those premium decreases and we put things in place to help them get to those premium decreases. So I can't imagine that, you know, these insurers, doctors and hospitals are going to love to be regulated if that's what has to happen. It's our sincere hope that the market will be able to achieve these results on their own. Um, And I think, Andrea, you're right that the market is going to be incentivized to not have to go through those hearings. And I think that we'll see them take steps in order to meet those goals on their own. But accountability is kind of one of those core components that we've been missing from a lot of the discussions that have occurred over the last decade, two decades, three decades, um, in the healthcare space in general. Folks talk a lot about wanting to save people money on healthcare. And this piece of legislation really puts that accountability into place. What do you mean by holding the players accountable in all of this? Yeah, Andrea, what it really means is that we're if, if the healthcare market can't achieve these premium decreases, that they'll have to come to a rate hearing in front of the Division of Insurance that's a public rate hearing for the public to have a discussion about why those premium decreases weren't hit, who's really at fault for not being able to meet the premium decrease goals that the legislation sets forth. And we really truly do believe that that accountability component is going to be the difference between this piece of legislation and this law and some of the other pieces of legislation around the country. And Andrea, a really important part of those public hearings is going to be the sunshine that that provides on the process, because something that's been very difficult over the past years, when we've been focusing on trying to reduce the cost of health care for our neighbors and friends, you often run into these roadblocks of not knowing why you know, a hospital that is making millions of millions of dollars or an insurance company that's paying its C-suite executive six figures, why at the end of the day, they can't figure out how to reduce costs by 5% per year. And they, as a healthcare industry, have said, you know what, we can do this on our own if you let us. And so this bill says, go for it. We are excited that everyone's going to come to the table and uh, try to try really hard to achieve this goal of a 5% reduction over uh, three consecutive years. But if they can't meet it, then we're all going to come back to the table and we're going to have the really tough conversation of why we can't reduce costs in a huge corporate industry by 5% for individuals who currently are trying to choose between a mortgage and healthcare. Let's say you're insurer, though. Are you going to stay in Colorado if you believe the market is overregulated? 
This has been a scare tactic that has been used for years and years and years. They used it this year as another opportunity to threaten they're going to leave the state, but Colorado is a pretty great place to be a business, and it's a pretty great place to live. And so I keep being hard-pressed to see that that's going to be a reality at the end of the day. And Andrea, just to build off of that exact point, we've had insurance companies in the last two months um, in the midst of conversations about the Colorado option, these companies knowing full well that it was extremely likely that we were going to get this legislation through. And actually in the last week, we've had an insurance company come to us and tell us that they plan to expand within the state. And what do you expect will be the sticking points, Commissioner, between insurers and healthcare providers over these costs? I would imagine it's um, going to be some of the kind of things that we've heard through the years, Andrea, that there will be at least some finger pointing that goes on between all of the different parties. But I do fundamentally believe that because of the way that Senator Donovan and the other sponsors really put this bill together, that they're going to be able to get past that finger pointing and they're going to be able to come to the table and, and really meet the goals that the legislation asked them to meet. When will the state-sponsored plan be ready for people to actually use it? So people will be able to purchase the Colorado option in both the individual and the small group market starting in really the fall in the open enrollment period and at the end of 2022. So it'll go into effect in the 2023 calendar year. And Senator Donovan, can you give me a sense of who you expect will choose this option? We expect there'll be many people that will look at this and see that it's a good fit for them. What I think is exciting about this plan is we do hope that some people that currently don't have insurance will purchase this more affordable option. The other thing that's really exciting about the Colorado option and that it includes the small group market is that's going to be a great fit for small businesses across the state to be able to, as part of their business plan, be able to offer health insurance to their employees. This was some of the really compelling testimony that we heard. And so it's exciting to be able to have the small group and individual market be a part of this Colorado option to have increased consumer choice and cheaper health care that is real coverage in the individual and small group market across the state. Now, as part of the negotiations during the session, the bill does not include a requirement that doctors have to accept the Colorado option. And, Senator, what would be the motivation then for these doctors to go with the plan? I was in track at Notre Dame to go into med school. And one of the driving motivations when I was thinking about becoming a doctor was this deep commitment to care for people. And I think that's shared across a lot of individuals that work in healthcare as doctors, nurses, specialists. And the Colorado option, by participating in that, will be another route for them to help people. So I think the driving force behind a lot of medical professionals will lead them to participating in the Colorado option. But I think, too, if we get to a place where we're trying to design a plan and we can't find the doctor that we really need to make sure that that plan is like the commissioner said, not just a card in your pocket, but actually real coverage with real doctors at the end of the day, then we'll just have to figure out and problem solve uh, those gaps in the system when we get there. I mean, I think we can agree that doctors go into medicine to help people. At the same time, you know, there's a lack of general practitioners because they feel they're not making enough money in some cases. And, you know, they have a lot of student loans. And the concern is there just may not be enough doctors, you know, to accommodate folks that choose the Colorado option. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of people have a lot of student loans, right? But that's another problem we'll have to solve on another day. Um, and we've done some work in the past in the General Assembly to start trying to build up, particularly in rural Colorado, uh, you know, what our healthcare uh, professionals look like out there and who we have available. But you're right. What, what you bring up with this question is the complexity of healthcare in Colorado and in this nation, and that our work with this bill is not done. That, you know, we're not going to walk away from uh, the bill signing and say, well, congratulations, everyone. We've solved health care in Colorado. We'll have to continue to work next session and the session after that on making sure that when we talk about access to health care, that it is not your zip code, your income, or your race should not determine your health outcomes. And right now it can. And I don't think that's something that Colorado should stand for. We should make sure that everyone in this state has access to great health outcomes. And the Colorado option is a really innovative solution that makes huge strides towards that goal. Do the insurers or the hospitals have to accept the Colorado option if doctors don't? Yeah, they sure do need to accept it, right? Because it's really important that those um, big pieces of this healthcare pie participate in this. Otherwise, it'd be hard for us to achieve the two big goals of the Colorado option, which was increased consumer choice, decreased costs while having a real lens on health equity. But also it's important that the bill through negotiations put in um, backstops for both of those industries that they agreed to. So if there's a reason that the bill took, you know, a couple months to get to its final form, and that's because we were working closely with everyone who's involved in the healthcare industry in Colorado and who will have to be a part of the Colorado option to make sure that at the end of the day, maybe they didn't love it, but at least they were comfortable with how it would move forward. So the goal of the legislation was to cut the cost of health insurance premiums. But do you think this will do anything to address overall health care costs to an average Coloradan? Andrea, so yes, I think the the answer to that question is yes, that it does incentivize the market to find solutions for this. And I think that the market will take those steps in order to control costs so that they can hit these premium decreases. Why not just regulate costs for all of the players outside of the state option, just generally? That's a complicated question that has a complicated answer that kind of delves into all sorts of constitutional law issues about where we can regulate and where we can't regulate. But we do believe that the rest of the healthcare market will be able to see what we do in this space and we'll be able to learn from it and we'll be able to implement similar things, even in those components that we don't have direct regulatory control over. Commissioner, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Andrea. And Senator, thanks to you too. Thanks so much for having us today. Senator Carrie Donovan is a lawmaker from Vail, and she was a sponsor of the Colorado Option Bill. Michael Conway is the insurance commissioner with the Colorado Department of Regulatory Agencies. If there's one thing Democrats and Republicans in Washington, D.C. can agree on, it's that big tech companies need to be reined in. A bipartisan group of lawmakers is pushing a package of bills to do that. And helping lead that fight are two Coloradans, Ken Buck and Joe Neguse. CPR's Caitlin Kim reports. Republican Representative Ken Buck never thought he'd be leading an antitrust charge. He says if you'd asked him about pushing antitrust bills 18 months ago, you would not have gotten a positive response. I was very much a market person. 
I looked at this and said, the market will take care of this. At some point, Amazon will start fading and, and other companies will rise and, and the marketplace can handle this. In 2019, the House Judiciary Antitrust Subcommittee, where Buck is currently the highest ranking Republican, embarked on a top-to-bottom investigation into the business conduct of technology's big four, Amazon, Apple, Facebook and Google. Over the course of that investigation, Buck's opinion changed. Big tech has routinely used their gatekeeper power to crush competitors, harm innovation, distort and destroy the free market, and silence conservatives. In a neighboring district, but on the other end of the political spectrum, Democratic Representative Joe Neguse is also concerned about how big tech has used its dominance. You know, at the end of the day, competition is central to American economic growth and innovation. Every American uh, agrees on that front. You know how they say politics makes for strange bedfellows? Well, a bipartisan group of disparate lawmakers, including Buck and Neguse, have put together a package of antitrust bills. The group includes progressives and conservatives, some were impeachment managers, while others are some of former President Donald Trump's staunchest supporters. Buck says their collaboration here shows the urgency of this issue. We've been through a very tumultuous time in the last few years. And we're able to put our differences aside and focus on something that's really important to America. And, and I'm very proud to uh, be part of that effort. Nagus adds, this is not a red or blue issue. It's about taking the necessary steps to ensure the free market can flourish. Congress has a vital role to play in ensuring that ultimately markets are working in a way that benefits consumers, benefits small businesses, innovation, and ultimately, our democracy. It's not surprising that Buck and Nagus are working together on this. The two Colorado lawyers both sit on the relevant committees and are friends, which was on display during a Capitol Hill press conference on the bills. This is a very serious subject, but uh, I'll just first say I thought I was the most fashionable member of the Colorado congressional delegation, and I stand corrected in light of the minority members' uh, <laughs> very nice tan suit. And fashion aside, while they can disagree politically on issues, they have proven to be nuanced, thoughtful, and pragmatic lawmakers who can work across the aisle and potentially accomplish something big. Because if these bills pass, it could update monopoly laws for the 21st century. One would make it easier for people to take their data with them when they switch services, like you can take your phone number to different cell phone carriers. Another would stop discriminatory conduct by dominant platforms, you know, putting their products ahead of the competition. Nagus, who ran Colorado's regulatory agency, has introduced a bill that updates merger filing fees to fund the country's antitrust agencies. I know how critical it is for our enforcement agencies to have the necessary resources and the tools to do their job. A fourth bill would prevent the biggest companies from owning or operating a business that creates a conflict of interest. And the last would stop the tech giants from buying competitors. Think Facebook and Instagram. Democratic Representative David Cicilline, chair of the subcommittee, says there's a reason for this strategy of having multiple bills. Part of it is that this is a big issue with lots of areas that need attention. The other is the politics of taking on big tech. The reality is we're fighting enormous companies that have, you know, with tremendous economic power comes tremendous political power. I think my friend Ken Buck refers it as to the lobbying or the swamp of Washington. They're going to mobilize hard against these reforms. As will some members of Congress, either because they don't deal directly with censorship or because they see more regulation as big government. Buck had a message for his GOP colleagues who might be on the fence. 
for my conservative friends concerned about big tech's power over information and speech. The only way to stop this power is through antitrust reform. These bills address that power. What he says we can't do is kick the can down the road and wait. In Washington, D.C., I'm Caitlin Kim, CPR News. If you had to fly during the pandemic, the silver lining was easy parking, a half-full airport, and empty airplane seats. But that probably won't last much longer. Nationally, the traveler count over the past several days is more than triple what it was during the same time last year. CPR's Paolo Shalsada joins us to talk about what to know before heading out to Denver International Airport this summer. And hi, Paolo. Hi. So a lot more people traveling recently. Tell me more about that. Sure. So according to national data provided by the TSA, at least one million people flew every day during March. And that blows 2020's number out of the water, you know, because of the pandemic. In 2019, travelers around this time of year regularly surpassed 2 or 2.5 million. It was the busiest year on record for the United States. And according to DIA officials, we're probably going to reach those numbers again. So what will DIA look like this summer? It'll be super busy at certain times of the day. Officials say the busiest times will be 5 a.m. to 11 a.m., noon to 2 p.m., and 9 p.m. to midnight for those brutal red eyes. Uh, The number of people in the airport will be really the only sign that the pandemic is slowing down. Everyone will be wearing masks. It's not a request. It's a federal mandate that's been extended until mid-September, even if you've already been vaccinated. Commonly touched surfaces like doors and screening bins will also be cleaned regularly. Now, during the pandemic, people found they could get through security much faster, so maybe they could cut it a little closer arriving at the airport. How early now should someone get to the airport? Yeah, those days are over. DIA officials are still advising travelers to arrive at the airport at least two hours before their flight, but they'll be using some new methods to make the screening process a little easier. First, they have some new technology that means you won't have to show a boarding pass to TSA agents. And I'll let TSA spokesperson Lori Dankers explain how that works. So we're looking at the credential authentication technology. We affectionately call it CAT. And this unit is able to scan a photo ID, pull up the biographical information of the traveler, as well as their flight information. And one other thing the TSA is using is a new x-ray scanning machine. Gone are the days of having to take your laptop out of your bag. Now the TSA uses a machine that takes a 3D scan, which shows a better picture of what's in a bag. They say this will reduce the amount of bag checks and touch points between passengers and officers. Just in the last few minutes, the United States is seeing some progress with vaccinations, but some countries aren't faring that well. Others are still experiencing massive outbreaks. What should people know if they're traveling abroad? First off, each country has their own entry requirements, so make sure you're aware of those before buying a ticket. And if you make it to the other country, know you have to get tested for COVID-19 no more than three days before you return, and you have to provide proof of a negative test. This applies to all returning travelers, even vaccinated ones. Paolo, thanks for joining us. No problem. That's CPR General Assignment Reporter Paolo Shalsada. And we'll be right back with new efforts to reach community immunity in the fight against COVID-19. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Paula Williams is transgender and author of As a Woman, our pick for Turn the Page with Colorado Matters. It's a fresh look at the gender gap. She has no idea how much harder it is for her than it is for the guy in the Brooks Brothers jacket in the office across the hall. I know. I was that guy. 
Tickets for June 30th at cpr.org slash turn the page. Supported by Wanabo Love Keller Mendenhall Smith Wealth Management Group of Wells Fargo Advisors. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Andrea Dukakis. The COVID-19 vaccination rate for Colorado's Hispanic population lags behind other groups. It's a concern we've been tracking for months. CPR health reporter John Daly is monitoring the latest efforts to get more people the shot. This was the scene recently at an international soccer tournament held at Empower Field at Mile High. There were horns. Drums. Crowds going wild for teams from Mexico, Honduras, Costa Rica, and the USA. And next to the stadium, inside an RV-like red and white bus, there's this. And which arm would you want it in, right or left? Uh, right. The push comes with Latino vaccination rates still stubbornly lagging behind other populations, despite aggressive efforts by the state and community groups. Oscar Felipe Sanchez comes to the bus wearing a Mexico jersey with a Mexico flag draped over his shoulders. You came for the game. Uh-huh. Um, how come you decided to get your shot today? With the help of a translator, he says. Have a little bit more freedom, and that way if I'm out and exposed, I'm, a, I'm more I'm protected. He came here at halftime of one of the games to get the one-shot vaccine, Johnson & Johnson. Sanchez is a house painter. He lives in Colorado Springs. After he got sick with COVID-19 a couple of months ago, he thought it was time. Yeah, he was advised to wait a little bit afterwards before getting the shots. Are you glad now you feel good to get it today? Yeah, se siente bien de haber recibido la vacuna. Oh, sí, sí. Oh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes, he's more, he's more trusting to go out. A look at state data reveals the challenge. About half of Hispanic Coloradans have gotten at least one dose of the vaccine, compared to more than two-thirds of whites. Denver has hit the 70 percent threshold, but some of its Latino neighborhoods are getting vaccinated at much lower rates, says Dr. Lilia Cervantes with Denver Health. There are some very high-risk neighborhoods where most of the community are first-generation or foreign-born individuals, and that is where we're seeing the highest disparities. Black Coloradans are also lagging behind, but not as much as Hispanic residents. All this portends a more uneven pandemic. Dr. Fernando Holguin from the Latino Research and Policy Center worries cases, hospitalizations, and deaths will keep flaring up in unvaccinated communities. I think the communities, for example, that are predominantly Hispanic in parts of the state or other states, and those communities, if vaccination rates are poor, they're at risk, uh, especially moving into the fall, of seeing increasing waves of infections. It is really critical to become vaccinated. Soccer fan Diego Montemayor says some fans who got shots themselves urge friends who came to the stadium to do the same. When they hear people that they trust sharing their experiences, that goes a long way. Community health advocate Karime Quintana here at the game, too, agrees. She's a promotora working in Denver's largely Latino Westwood neighborhood. Quintana says that population may trust someone close to them more than even a doctor. They need to be more educated about the COVID because they have a lot of questions. And Latino people, they listen, the neighbor, they listen, my friend. UC Health nurse Danica Farrington says the J&J vaccine being used here is easiest to provide and hesitancy to it has diminished. 
She also says the push is getting heavy messaging on billboards and big screens. They just plastered it everywhere and said, go get your shot. And that's, that's pretty influential. A man in front of the stadium named Jesus Romero Serrano sees it that way too and says the carnival atmosphere helps. Absolutely, it's a Mexico game versus Honduras, so Latins, Latinos are out here. <laughs> it's the perfect place to be to reach the Latin community, absolutely. Romero Serrano is what you would call a community influencer. He filters through the crowd, handing out cards about where to get the vaccine. He wears a Mexico jersey and a red and green mask in Mexico's colors. Oh man, this is a classical luchador mask and it comes from the Mexican culture. Romero Serrano is a community ambassador for the Denver mayor's office, but he admits sometimes it's hard to break through. What do you think is the reason that folks are not getting vaccinated? They don't trust the healthcare system. I think. Romero Serrano wades into the crowd. Hey guys, you get the vaccine? He tells people he's been vaccinated, explains how the vaccines are safe and effective, and when he asks, he frequently gets an affirmative reply. Yes, they tell him, I got my shot. Everybody has They said they already had it. The common answer is everybody has it. <laughs> do you Which, think they're uh, just trying to avoid you? Yes, or do you think they really, they think they, they really have it? No, I think they don't have it and they're being so courteous, they're being so nice that they say, ah, it's okay, we already have it. <laughs> yeah. A few miles from the stadium, Dr. Pamela Valenza works to promote vaccines at the Tepeyac Community Health Center. It's in the predominantly Hispanic Globeville neighborhood. She tries to address patients' fears and concerns, but many tell her they want to wait and see that People who are vaccinated are not going to get complications, that people who are vaccinated are not going to get significant side effects. Which might require missing work. Or they tell her that the vaccine was created maybe too quickly. Valenza recalls a middle-aged Hispanic patient telling her she wanted to wait. So the doctor walked her through the latest safety research, the vaccine process. And she said, no, I, I still want to wait. <laughs> and, and so then I said, well, do you want to schedule an appointment for the vaccine for a month from now? And she said, no, I'll call to schedule the appointment. Valenza hopes the state's million-dollar drawings might help, and her clinic is planning more vaccine events soon at a convenient time that doesn't interfere with work, like Friday evenings. They'll offer free grocery cards for the vaccinated. And Valenza says she likes the idea of pairing vaccines with fun. The Latino culture, food and culture and community is such a central part of, of the Latino community. And so making the event maybe a little bit more than just the vaccine might encourage some community members to come out. Back at the vaccine clinic, Oscar Felipe Sanchez says that approach bringing the shots directly where people are, worked for him. Very good strategy. And, health leaders say, this kind of team effort is what it will take for Colorado to get near the ultimate goal of community immunity. I'm John Daly, CPR News. Labels are often meant to help consumers make better choices. Think organic food, sustainable timber, or BPA-free plastic. Now a Denver startup is trying the same thing with fossil fuels. CPR's climate and environment reporter Sam Brash looks into the new world of responsibly sourced natural gas. Chris Romer is no stranger to politics. He's a former state senator, the son of a Colorado governor, and he even ran for Denver mayor. 
Today, he's waging a different kind of campaign, not for himself, but for natural gas. Just because it's fossil fuel doesn't mean it's all the same carbon footprint. We are producing the cleanest natural gas on the planet here in Colorado, and that's what we're evangelizing on. Romer now runs a company called Project Canary. It's a trusted independent data firm that helps stop methane leaks as well as to help solve the problem on climate change. I met Romer at an oil and gas pad operated by Crestone Peak Resources. The company hired Project Canary to certify their product as responsibly sourced natural gas. It's also set up a number of pollution sensors, small white boxes with solar panels. Romer calls these canaries. The canaries are just like smoke detectors. And so when there's an intermittent leak, and it's rare because this is a really good operator, we can see that in real time. Now, none of this is required by law. It's more aimed at people worried about climate change, people in the general public, people in government, and people in corporate boardrooms. See, oil and gas companies have long resisted investor attempts to force changes. John Oates is with Crestone Peak Resources. He says his company sees the writing on the wall for the whole industry. When you turn off the last bigot of oil or natural gas, we want it to be a Crestone location just because of the way we do it. You want to start with the dirtier ones first and work your way to the cleanest. The move has won an early endorsement from Excel Energy. Colorado's largest utility has long enticed investors with promises of renewable energy and net zero emissions. But it's also planning to build new gas lines and power plants. Last month, it announced a pilot project with Crestone Peak to buy responsibly sourced natural gas. It's really just to make it appear as a climate solution when in fact nothing could be further from the truth. This is Duncan Gilchrist with 350 Colorado, a local environmental advocacy group. He says scientists increasingly agree that the climate can't afford any new fossil fuel development. Not coal, not oil, and not natural gas either. There's no way to like reasonably label natural gas production as responsible at this moment in time. Gilchrist also says Project Canary is only helping with a sliver of the problem. Natural gas is primarily methane, a potent greenhouse gas that can leak in the production and distribution process. It's great to fix those leaks, but Gilchrist says... The vast majority of emissions from oil and gas that's produced in Colorado happens when that product is exported and combusted. And Project Canary doesn't do much about those emissions. Overall, he says it's really just marketing to justify more fossil fuel development. Romer, the Project Canary CEO, says that argument... Candidly, is BS. As he sees it, oil and gas isn't going away tomorrow. The question is how it's produced as the industry winds down. From the Crestone site, he points to an older oil and gas operation down the road. That site, I wouldn't go near it for fear that it would blow up. For somebody to come out and say this is greenwashing, they need to come out on this site and see the difference between a responsible production company like Crestone Peak versus, you know, competitor B right over there. And it's a difference Romer says his company can guarantee. I'm Sam Brash, CPR News. With summer officially underway, it might be time to find a shady spot under a tree and crack open a book, which is why we invited some book experts to give us their summer reading picks. Margie Wilson owns Grand Valley Books in Grand Junction. Ravati Kilaparty does community outreach for old firehouse books in Fort Collins. Their recommendations are all books that have Western themes and or Colorado authors. And welcome to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Margie Wilson of Grand Valley Books, let's start with you and with a novel. What do you have for some good summer reading? 
I have a book that I describe in my bookstore as The Canoe Trip from Hell. It's The River by Peter Heller. And it came out in, in um, spring of 2019. However, it continues to be one of the best sellers in my store. And I think it's because it's about high adventure and things that people can relate to. Uh, two good friends go on a canoe trip and soon find themselves in not just a difficult situation, but one that could be potentially deadly. They run into everything, including killers on, on the river, um, a firestorm that's going to sweep over them, difficulties with getting down the river, a lack of food, and somebody who needs to be cared for because she's in really bad shape. Mm. Uh, just like in his books, The, the Painter and The Dog Stars, Peter knows how to get your attention in the first five pages of his story and keep it the entire time. Um, I've really enjoyed selling this book to people because they always come back and say, when's his next one? When's mm. another one going to come up? And one is, is about a- to come out, actually. We interviewed Heller about the river a couple of years ago for the show. CPR's Ryan Warner mentioned a wildfire that's described in this book. You write just brilliantly about wildfire. There's a giant fire raging in the distance. It's adding to the tension in this novel, The River. Let me just quote how you describe it. The fire in its fury could speak tongues, could speak the language of every enemy, and sing too. Over the rush, very faint, was a high-pitched thrum, a humming of air that rose and fell almost in melody. You had a close encounter with a wildfire, I think in 94. Mm -hmm. Yeah, right right up the valley. Um, I was living in Paonia, and I was working on a, a long narrative poem. I was in my house, and the last line I wrote was, it was about a waterfall, and it was something like, the lash of braided grief, I bring you fire. And I stepped outside to get a drink out of the hydrant, and I looked down the valley towards Hotchkiss, and I saw a plume of smoke coming off the slope, and it was the same weekend as the Storm King fire, and same conditions, you know, really hot and dry. And the Storm King fire he mentioned near Glenwood Springs in 1994 killed 14 hotshot firefighters. That was author Peter Heller in an interview for Colorado Matters about his book, The River. It's about two college students on a wild canoe trip through the wilderness. And it's a summer reading recommendation from Margie Wilson, the owner of Grand Valley Books in Grand Junction. Ray Vadi, you're with Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins. The book you chose for fiction is Sight Fidelity by Claire Boyles. What's this one about? Oh, yeah, this one's an exciting one. It just came out this month, and it's a collection of short stories. It's Claire's debut book, um, and she is local. She's here. um, She's in Loveland, and I think she's teaching at CSU right now. Um, And it's short stories that kind of are take place in the American West in Colorado, um, spanning from the 1970s to kind of the near future. And it's really great because the stories are about 20, 30 pages. You can pick it up, put it down. Um, and they're all, they all have themes of like wildness, wildness, loneliness, and like homesickness. Um, so I think it's just relatable to a wide variety of people. Um, I really liked one story called The Best Response, and it's about an adult couple the best response to fear, sorry. It's about an adult couple moving back to their parents' home during the recession um, and just kind of, there's always stress there, but the emotional support is really what's important. 
um, it's just, I don't know, it's really interesting. There's a wide variety of stories. Some of them are interconnected. Um, so I think everyone can find something in there. It's really beautiful. And short stories good for summer reading in, you know, spurts. Uh, again, that's Sight Fidelity by Claire Boyles. Margie, let's check back in with you for a piece of nonfiction you chose. It's called Historic Mysteries of Western Colorado, Case Files from Western Investigations Team, from the Western Investigations Team by David Bailey. What kinds of mysteries are these? David Bailey, working with the Western Investigations Team um, at Colorado Mesa University and the Museum of the West here in Grand Junction has crafted some wonderful stories about the Spanish explorers and the colonial relics that have been found near Grand Junction and and just off of Grand Mesa. Um, He also talks about the Alfred Packer mystery, which is one that so many Coloradans relate to because they've learned about it in history classes. Um, and, And all of these are stories about investigations that have been conducted and have brought better understanding and more than anecdotal evidence to the forefront. Um, David recently retired from the Colorado Museum, or from the Museum of the West in Grand Junction, and I'm looking to, I'm really looking forward to see what he does in the future with investigations with CMU. Um, His professionalism and his investigative techniques, as well as his dedicated as well as his dedication to finding the best evidence of historical events in Colorado have always just really intrigued me. And readers enjoy these because they can pick it up and read a a 10 or 15 page essay about one of these investigations. So that's Historic Mysteries of Western Colorado, Case Files from the Western Investigations Team by David Bailey. And Revati, your nonfiction pick is Reign of Wolf 21 by Rick McIntyre. Why did you pick this one? Oh, it's it's fantastic. Um, a lot of people around here I know are fans of this author, Rick McIntyre, and fans of reading about wolves in general. Um, and I, it's the second one of his kind of wolf trilogy, I would say. His first was Rise of Wolf 8. And this one kind of picks off, picks up where that left off. And it's about Wolf 21, who is a truly, he's a unique pack leader of this um, Druid Peak pack in Yellowstone. And he's just, he's fascinating. And his relationship with his partner is fascinating, who is Wolf 42. Um, and it's just, he's a different kind of unique style of leadership he he never fatally killed his rivals he led by kind of example more he was just this really interesting wolf and rick writes in a way that really connects you to this pack and you get to know everyone but he doesn't anthropomorphize the wolves but you still feel for them it's kind of like a little soap opera of wolves Mm. um and it's really it's we're excited about it his third book comes out in october um, and he's going to be at the Wolf Sanctuary Gala in August. So I think a lot of people around this area will be excited. And I highly recommend it. Even, even if like wolf stuff is not your thing, mm-hmm. I think you'll change your mind. 
That's Reign of Wolf 21 by Rick McIntyre, a recommendation from Ravadi Kilapardi of Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins. And Margie, you call this next book an inspiring account of resilience and tenacity. It's The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again by Jim Davidson. Davidson lives in Fort Collins. What's this one about? Jim Davidson's climbing career spans 33 years at the writing of this book, which came out just this spring. Um, He arrived to Mount Everest and began the climb in 2015, just as the most serious earthquake of the last 90 years struck. It was a 7.8 magnitude earthquake, and Jim was trapped along with his team um, at high altitude not knowing where they were going to get out, how they were going to get out, because all of the egress, or excuse me, all of the exits were um, filled with avalanche debris. Um, That avalanche killed 8,900 people. And I'm so glad that Jim survived to tell this story because it's a story about um, challenges and survival under dire circumstances and rallying the human spirit to to go past the immediate and look to how the the future can evolve if you've got great resilience. Um, Jim is also a motivational speaker and does seminars on resilience and building it and finding it within yourself. Um, his, His books have been truly inspiring to me. And I know that a lot of people who are climbers want to read this one because he does a really thorough account of the beginning of the climb, um, being trapped on Mount Everest, and and being rescued from it. Um, Jim stayed to help other people at the base camps before returning back to Colorado. And thankfully, he was able to return to Mount Everest in 2017 and summit. Mm -hmm. I think that, reach the summit. And I think that um, many people who are looking at challenges in their life, whether they are climbers or not, will enjoy the story and the the attitude that Jim presents, that um, things can be challenging, things can be awful, but you can survive and you can survive well. Mm. That's The Next Everest, Surviving the Mountain's Deadliest Day and Finding the Resilience to Climb Again by Jim Davidson. And Revati, you have a cookbook to recommend. It's called Mexican Home Kitchen by Melly Martinez. And I guess this is less about summer reading and more about summer cooking. Why did you choose this one? Um, if anyone that comes to the store will know, I probably have a cookbook that I'm working on or just love. And this is one of the latest ones. Um, I haven't done a lot of Mexican cooking myself, but this book um, came from a blog that the author started and it's just beautiful. Um, If you look at it, you'll just fall in love with it. And um, she does authentic home style Mexican cooking. So it's a little different. Um, It's definitely more accessible, I feel like to a lot of people. And I know a lot of the customers that have been in the store and looked through it are like, oh, this reminds me of home or like it's familiar familiar to them, familiar recipes. Um, she wrote it to share cooking and memories with her son. And really it, it comes through in her writing and then the recipes. Um, they're really simple. There's a simple, helpful layout. Um, she does like a really good 
enchilada verde sauce that Mm. I like. You can adjust it easily because she gives you just techniques about roasting vegetables. And um, I'm just in really helpful notes. I'm looking forward to making the mole poblano. It has a lot of ingredients, but it looks delicious. Um, I highly recommend at least looking through it. (laughs) It's great. So that's Mexican Home Kitchen by Melly Martinez. And Margie, you have one more book to recommend about hiking, which has grown even more popular during the pandemic. It's called Discovering the Colorado Plateau, A Guide to the Region's Hidden Wonders by Bill Haggerty. Tell us about this book. I'd love to. I'd also say, Ray, when you get that mole verde down pat, send some this way. The Colorado Plateau spans 240,000 square miles of high desert region across Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, and Utah. Um, The Colorado Plateau is truly a gem of our country, and it's not just a pile of rocks. Um, There are spires and canyons and stunning vistas, landscapes that every photographer can be inspired by, and geology to entice you to learn more. Um, The recreational opportunities on the Colorado Plateau probably rival any other part of our country. Mountain biking, hiking, river rafting, day hikes, long hikes, backpacking are all things that, that are covered in Bill's Colorado Plateau book. He's spent the last four decades um, hiking the Colorado Plateau and and river rafting and kayaking and getting to know the ins and outs and the secret places and the sacred places of the Colorado Plateau. Thanks so much to you. Thank you so much. Ray Vati, thanks to you too. Yes, thanks for having me. Margie Wilson owns Grand Valley Books in Grand Junction. Ray Vadi Kilaparty does community outreach for Old Firehouse Books in Fort Collins. Their summer book recommendations are ones with Western themes and Colorado authors. We'll post all of their selections at CPR.org. I'm Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.